turn to our God's Word now. <clears throat> Hebrews chapter 3, verses 7 through 14. If you're following along in the Bibles in the pews, that's on page 969. We're continuing a sermon series for the season of Lent. We are using the book of Hebrews as a window into talking about this season of Lent. Uh, at some point, I would love to do a series on the book of Lent itself, where we explore the themes and the structure of that book and what's going on there. But we're really using this book as a window into the season of Lent uh, these couple of weeks as we lead up to Easter. And so that's what we're going to continue this morning. And we'll continue here with chapter 3, verse 7 through 14. And this is what it says. As the Holy Spirit says, and then the preacher of this sermon, because remember this is an early Christian sermon, quotes part of Psalm 95. So he says, as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion during the time of testing in the wilderness where your ancestors tested and tried me though they saw for 40 years what I did. That is why I was angry with that generation. I said, their hearts are always going astray and they have not known my ways and so I swore, I made a, uh, sorry, I swore on oath, I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. And then the preacher of Hebrews stops quoting that psalm and he applies it to his congregation and he says this, see to it brothers and sisters that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God but encourage one another daily as long as it is called today so that none of you will be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold firmly to the end our original conviction. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Sisters and brothers in Jesus Christ, uh, it's been said many times and in various ways over the years by many different people that it's not the destination that matters, it's how you get there. It's the journey, they say, the process, the, the road you travel. That's what really matters in life. It's, it's how you get there, what happens along the way, and the experiences that you have. Well, in the same way, the book, uh, the author of the book of Hebrews says something similar in our passage here this morning. It's the journey, he says, the process, the road you travel. That's what matters. Only he comes at it from a different angle. Because rather than talking about the end, the destination, he talks about the beginning. It's not just how you start, says the preacher of Hebrews. It's how you continue that matters. Uh, just as a reminder, this book was written to a group of Jewish Christians in the early church, and we don't know who they were. We don't know where they were living or their exact context or situation. But we do know that they were facing some difficulties, some pressure, some obstacles and barriers uh, in their faith. We'll actually talk more specifically about some of those barriers next week. But for our purposes this morning, we just need to know that they were facing some hardship, some adversity, some difficulty. And so the writer, the preacher of this sermon, uh, because again, that's what this book really is. It's an early Christian sermon. He writes to encourage them. 
Using both positive and negative examples from Israel's history, here's what you should do, here's what you should be like, here's what you should strive for, and then here's what you shouldn't do, here's what you shouldn't be like, here's what you shouldn't strive for. He writes to encourage, exhort, and call these believers to keep, to continue living out their faith as Christian believers. As he puts it in verse 14 here, we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original conviction firmly to the very end. In other words, what the preacher of Hebrews is telling his readers to do is to stick with it, to keep going, to hold firm to their faith regardless of what they're facing, not just, he says, at the beginning, when they first converted, when they first became Christians, but all the way through. Again, it's not just how you start, it's not even how you end, it's how you get there that matters. And to make that point, uh, the preacher uses an example from the Old Testament and then applies it to his readers here. That's because in verses seven through 11, he quotes the last five verses of Psalm 95, which themselves reference another Old Testament text, Exodus chapter 17. Let's just turn there and read that passage, Exodus 17. Put simply, Exodus 17 is the story of how about two and a half months after the Exodus, the Israelites rebelled against God at a place called Massa or Meribah. Here's the story. The whole Israelite community set out from the desert of Sin, traveling from place to place as the Lord commanded. They camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. So they quarreled with Moses, who was the leader of the Israelites, and said, give us water to drink. Moses replied, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? But the people were thirsty for water there, and they grumbled against Moses. They said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to make us and our children and livestock die of thirst? Then Moses cried out to the Lord, what am I to do with these people? They are almost ready to stone me. The Lord answered Moses, go out in front of the people. Take with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. I will stand there before you by the rock at Horeb. Strike the rock and water will come out of it for the people to drink. So Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel and he called the place Massa, which means testing, and Meribah, which means quarreling, because the Israelites quarreled and because they tested the Lord saying, is the Lord among us or not? Now, like I said, that's the passage that's lying behind Psalm 95, which the author of Hebrews references and quotes here. And there's a few things that are important to note about that passage, Exodus 17, and this story uh, that, that the author of Hebrews is referencing. First, the Israelites' request for water is not the problem here. Okay, let's just get that clear right off the bat. That's a pretty reasonable request, right? I mean, after all, the Israelites are out there in the desert. They don't have any water. They need water, so it makes sense that they would ask for water. It's not the request itself that's the problem. Instead, the problem is how they ask for it. Because while the first part of this text makes them look okay, it's the last part that sort of cues us in to how the Israelites were asking for water. That's because in verse 7, Moses calls the place Massa and Meribah because the text says the Israelites quarreled and because they tested the Lord, they're saying, is the Lord among us or not? And that's the key. 
You see, it's not like the Israelites were asking, O Lord, God and Father, we humbly come before you and beseech you for water. You know, they're not being pious here. Instead, this is more how they were acting. Is the Lord even among us? Because we're in a desert and we don't even have any water. Where is God? It's kind of a challenge. That's how the Israelites were acting here. That's how they were asking for water. Again, it wasn't the request that was the problem. It was the way they were making the request. Because the way that they were requesting water here demonstrates a lack of trust in God. And that's interesting. Because you would think that the Israelites would still be pretty trusting of God here, right? There's a couple cues or, or hints in this text that sort of, sort of clue us into a couple of things. Um, first, the text mentions the elders. The Lord answered Moses, go out in front of the people, take with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Here's why it's interesting that the text mentions the elders. Um, because after Moses experiences the burning bush and his call to go back to Egypt and liberate the Israelites in Exodus 3 and 4, the first people that he meets with when he gets back to Egypt are the elders of Israel. As the end of chapter four says, Moses and Aaron, that's Moses' brother, brought together all the elders of the Israelites and Aaron told them everything the Lord had said to Moses. He also performed the signs before the people, which were the signs that the Lord had given Moses and Aaron to sort of prove that they were legit, that God had really sent them, and they believed. And when they heard that the Lord was concerned about them and had seen their misery, they bowed down, they bowed down and worshiped. So that's why it's interesting that Exodus 17 mentions the elders. Because you would think that of all people, the elders of Israel would remember that yes, God is among us. After all, it seems that they had believed that at one point before. The text also mentions Moses' staff. The Lord answered Moses, go out in front of the people, take with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. That's a reference to the first plague Moses and Aaron unleash on Egypt. In Exodus chapter seven, Moses tells Pharaoh to let God's people go or else God is going to turn all the water and all the canals and all the streams and all the rivers and all the ponds to blood. And sure enough, Pharaoh chooses not to let the Israelites go. And so Moses raises his staff, he stretches it out over the river Nile and it turns to blood. Here's the point. Moses still has that same staff in his hand. And so if the Israelites want an answer to that question, is the Lord among us or not, all they have to do is look at it. Because that staff is meant to be a constant reminder of everything that God already has done and everything that he can still do for the Israelites, his faithfulness to them. Maybe most unbelievable of all, though, is that, like we said, this whole situation takes place only two and a half months after the Exodus itself. Just think about that for a second. Think about everything that the Israelites have seen over the last couple of months, right? First, you've got the 10 plagues, all these plagues that God unleashes on the land of Egypt in order to convince Pharaoh to let his people go. 
Then, after it does finally work, after Pharaoh finally decides to let them go, you've got the Exodus itself, where God leads his people up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery, and into freedom. But then Pharaoh changes his mind, and he gathers his arm, and he comes chasing after the Israelites, and so what does God do then? He covers Pharaoh's army in darkness, darkness, and he keeps them from getting to his people. And while that's happening, he has Moses stretch out his staff, there's that staff again, over the Red Sea, he parts the waters, he leads his people through on dry ground, and then once they're safely on the other side, he allows the waters to flow back to their place, covering Pharaoh and his army in the process. There's more that happens after that too, but I think we get the point, because in two and a half months, the Israelites have seen a lot. They've seen miracle after miracle, provision after provision, time after time, where God has shown up and demonstrated his faithfulness to them, delivered them, taken care of them, and rescued them. And yet, they have the audacity, the gall here to ask, is the Lord among us or not? Is he even near to us? Is he even taking care of us? You see, again, It's not just how you start, it's how you continue that matters. I'm pretty sure that it was was probably pretty easy for the Israelites at the start, right? It was probably pretty easy for them to trust God during the Exodus as they're walking out of Egypt, as they're leaving the land of slavery behind and entering into freedom. But it's everything after that that counts too. That's where the rubber meets the road. That's where trust really matters. That's when it really counts, when the going gets tough, when things get hard, when difficulty and adversity start to pop up. That's when you really need to trust in God and unfortunately, the Israelites didn't have that kind of trust. Do you? That's the question that the preacher of Hebrews is asking his readers here in Hebrews 3. Do you have that kind of trust? Are you willing to stick to your faith and live it out, not just in the beginning when it's simple and it's easy and it comes naturally, but all the time after that as well? Do you trust in God? That's the question the preacher is asking his readers here. Uh, That's the, the question he was asking his readers back then. And it's the question he's asking us as his readers still today. Do you trust God, not just at the start, but all the way through? You see, one of the dangers facing the church both then, when the preacher originally wrote this sermon, and also still today, is the danger of nominalism. You know what I mean when I use that word? Nominalism. I actually uh, just found this out when I was studying for this sermon. I had to look it up. Uh, That word nominalism actually comes from the Latin word nomen, which means name. And so what nominalism literally means is in name only. That's what it means to be nominal. It means to be something, to care about something, to believe something in name, but not in any deeper or more meaningful sense than that. For instance, rhinos. Have you heard of this? Republicans in name only? You can laugh, it's okay. I know it's politics again, it's fine. All right? 
It's a name that some Republicans have started to give other Republicans when they think that those other Republicans are fake or fraudulent Republicans, that they're not real Republicans. You're not a real Republican, you're a rhino. You're a Republican in name only. I will leave the political implications of that alone. You had enough of that this past fall. But that's what it means to be nominal, right? It means to be something, to care about it in name, but not in any deeper or more real or significant sense. And the truth is, pretty much from the start, that's been a problem in the church. I would say it's been more of a problem since uh, 312 CE, because that's when the Emperor Constantine converted to the Christian faith. And here's the thing, when the Emperor converts, Suddenly everyone else wants to too, right? Because you want to be on the good side of the emperor. But as the preacher of Hebrews makes clear here, it's been there right from the start. As he puts it in verses 12 through 14, see to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God, but encourage one another daily as long as it is called today so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original conviction firmly to the very end. What the preacher is saying there in essence is don't be a nominal Christian. Don't be a Christian in name only. Don't call yourself a Christian only until the going gets tough, the road gets rough, and the waters start to get choppy. But stick to it. Stay the course. Keep going and hold your conviction in Christ, your faith, firmly to the very end. That's what the preacher means when he talks about today here. Did you catch how this comes up a couple times in this passage? Uh, for instance, in verse seven, quoting Psalm 95, he says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. And then again in verse 13, he says, encourage one another daily as long as it is called today. Now, I'll be honest, that used to kind of confuse me. I used to read this passage, and I'm like, what does he mean by today? Today, if you hear his voice, encourage one another daily as long as it is called today. What does the author mean by that? Fortunately, I have five commentaries on the book of Hebrews, and they understand it. So finally, in studying for this sermon, I, I understood what those verses meant. Because what the author of Hebrews is really saying here is, this day, this very day, today, live out your faith. Live it out here. Live it out now. Live it out today. The preacher's point here is that faith isn't something to delay. It's not something to take seriously tomorrow or the next day or the next day after that. It's something to take seriously today. Live it out today. I remember hearing um, Calvin University campus pastor uh, Mary Hulse talk about this a number of years ago. Uh, it was my first year of seminary and I was taking a class uh, at Calvin Seminary on the spiritual disciplines. Uh, for those of you who aren't familiar with what the spiritual disciplines are, they're all the practices that Christians have used for 2,000 years now to grow in our faith. So it's things like reading scripture and prayer and silence and solitude and Sabbath and all the rest. And, uh, and by the way, you're gonna be hearing more about those in the coming months because we've actually got some pretty cool stuff in the works uh, with our discipleship ministries related to the spiritual disciplines. But I was taking a class on that my first year of seminary and here's the reason I remember one of my professors saying you can't be a spiritual leader unless you yourself are spiritual 
You cannot think that you're going to go into ministry and lead the church if you yourself are not cultivating these practices in your own life. And so Calvin Seminary requires in the very first semester a class on the disciplines so that you start to make them a part of your life. And that's what Mary was there to talk about. Uh, Pastor Mary was there as a guest lecturer that day in order to talk about the importance of habit as it relates to the disciplines. And here's what she said, and I've never forgotten this. She said, if you ever hope to practice the disciplines, you need to make them a habit. They need to become a habit, a part of your life. But she said, here's the thing about habits. They never happen if you don't start. She said, most of us live under this myth of what she calls someday. Someday, I'll do this. Someday, I'll do that. Someday, I'll fill in the blank. But she said, someday never comes unless you start today. And so she very simply said to us as seminary students in our first year, whatever it is that you've been putting off and delaying and waiting for someday, 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 start today. And so I remember thinking about that. I got in my car, I'm driving home from class, I'm, I'm sort of noodling that over, I'm thinking through it. I get home, I kind of continue to think about it and reflect on it, and finally I came to a conclusion. And I went to my computer, and I downloaded P90X. <laughs> now I'm pretty sure that's not what she was trying to say. Uh, but I realized I've been putting off working out and exercise, and I keep saying someday, 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 and I did eventually get to the spiritual disciplines too, so I think it's okay. Um, but that's the point. That's what the preacher of Hebrews is saying here. As long as it is called today, live out your faith. Take it seriously. Treat it like it's the most important day of your relationship with God. Don't wait. Don't put it off. Don't do it someday. Do it now. Do it right away. Do it today. Again, it's not just how you start. It's how you continue that matters. And that's really what this season of Lent is all about, right? I mean, we sort of have a tendency, I know we're Protestant uh, Christians, right? So we sort of have a tendency to think Lent is that Catholic thing that Catholics do, right? But it's actually something that the church has practiced for 2,000 years, and here's why. Because it is a season, Lent is a season of repentance, of discipline, of self-examination, where we look at ourselves, we look at our lives, and we examine in a really in-depth way if we're really living the way that we should as Christians. Which is why Lent also has this historic practice of fasting, or we call it giving something up, attached to it. Lent is historically a season of fasting because it's a season where we look at our lives and we ask ourselves the question, who or what is standing in the way of my relationship with God? What is keeping me from experiencing the deeper sort of presence and nearness and love and companionship with him? And then whatever it is, we give that thing up in, hum in humility and obedience, we give that thing up for six weeks. Technically, we give it up six days out of the week for six weeks because Sundays are actually meant to be mini Easter's during Lent where you actually partake of the things that you're fasting from in order to anticipate the coming joy and goodness of Easter, but that's probably more nerdy theology than you want. That's the idea. We take a break. We give it up, we fast from the things that are standing in the way of our relationship with God so that we can reorient, recenter, and refocus our lives and our relationship with Christ. 
most of you know this by now, um, I think, because I've talked about it the last couple of years, but for me, that thing is media. I realized a few years ago that media and entertainment, movies, TV, music, um, all that sort of stuff, non-essential internet, NFL.com, I spend way too much time reading about the Chicago Bears, and they're always terrible, so I already know what the news is going to say, right? Those are the biggest time sucks in my life that keep me from a deeper relationship with Christ. And so during the season of Lent, for the last 10 years, I've done a media fast where I simply take all those apps on my phone, I put them in a folder that I don't touch till Easter. I don't surf any non-essential internet. Um, I don't want it to become legalism, so if a friend invites me to go and see a movie, I don't say, oh no, sorry, I'm so holy, I'm doing a media fast, right? Um, Sarah and I still watch TV together because it's one thing that helps you know, our relationship. It's shared activity. So it doesn't become legalism, but my rule of thumb is I don't turn anything on. So if I'm not hanging out with a friend, if Sarah's gone for the evening, I don't turn the TV on. And I simply rest from that so that I have the space and time in my life to instead focus on God and Jesus Christ. That and all the news from ESPN will still be there in April anyway, so I can catch up on how bad the bears are then. The point is, this is the time of year to start. This is why the church practices Lent in the lead up to Easter every year, because every year we need a time, a space, an opportunity to say enough is enough. I don't wanna keep living this way. I don't wanna keep putting it off. I don't wanna be a Christian in name only. I don't wanna keep saying someday, 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 someday I'll read through the Bible. Someday I'll develop a habit of prayer. Someday I'll take a Sabbath. No, for me, someday starts today. That's what Lent is. It's an opportunity, an invitation, and it really is an invitation, it's not legalism. A chance to make the journey just as important as either the beginning or the destination. Which brings us to the gospel this morning. Because what is the destination? What what is the goal that we are heading towards as Christians? What's the ultimate end that we are driving towards in our faith? I'll be honest, and this is probably gonna surprise some of you, it's not heaven. Uh, No offense, but if heaven is your goal and that's what you think that we are heading towards as Christian believers, then you have misread and misunderstood scripture because the Bible does not point us to heaven as our ultimate goal. It points us to Jesus. Heaven is the setting but Jesus is the goal. As the author of Hebrews puts it in verse 14, sharing in Christ, that's our focus, that's our destination, that's what we should be aiming towards, and that's what all this other stuff that we've talked about this morning helps us do. The spiritual disciplines, they are not ends unto themselves. Fasting, Lent, all the rest, that's not the goal. The goal is Christ, and all of that other stuff are simply things that help us get to him. They are avenues, paths, and practices towards Jesus. In other words, they're the things that help us not just start or end well, but continue as we firmly hold to our faith in him. And so my friends, today, not someday, Not next week or three months from now, but today, believe this, that Jesus lived, died, and rose to save you. 
Believe that God has made you good in his image and he is in the process through his Holy Spirit of restoring you to that image. Believe that that spirit is indeed at work in you. And then believing all that, live it out today. Thanks be to God. Amen. Will you pray with me? Lord God, we've talked about already in this service, we are your family. We are your adopted sons and daughters. And you have done that through your son, Jesus Christ. You have made that adoption possible. And and Lord, as your family, you have not left us homeless, but you have welcomed us here into your house, to your table, into relationship with you. Remind us of that today. It's in the name of Jesus Christ that we pray. Amen.